All right, so as I said, uh, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and so we're continuing uh, this theme that we've uh, been engaged in so far. It's a series called uh, an Advent series on God's eternal plan, and this is part four now, the restoration of the world. Uh, well, uh, we just recently watched uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again, and uh, it's just an amazing story. Uh, it's fascinated readers for years, uh, and if you've seen it, you know the story. Um, uh, the, the children enter into this world of Narnia through a magic wardrobe, and the land of Narnia is frozen by snow and ice. Uh, the White Witch had ruled the world for a hundred years, and during those years she had prevented Christmas. There was no Christmas in the land for a century. But as these four future kings, uh, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, enter into the world of Narnia, uh, there is hope. Hope springs anew uh, because uh, there is uh, this chance that things will begin to change. And at the midpoint uh, of the movie, uh, the four uh, children run into Father Christmas, uh, who gives them these weapons that they're going to need to defeat the White Witch, and he gives them this prophecy uh, that, that the, the witch's power is being weakened and that winter was almost over, and you're left with this hope that, that the witch will be defeated and that the snow and ice uh, in the land will melt and that all things will be made new. Now, Lewis's tale, of course, is an allegory, uh, and it, it draws on such th biblical themes as love and redemption, uh, forgiveness, sacrifice, restoration. Uh, the great and majestic lion, Aslan, of course, corresponds to Jesus. And despite Aslan's uh, incredible power, uh, he allowed himself to be killed on the stone by the white witch to atone for Edmund's sin of betrayal. But of course, Aslan returned to life. He drew from what they call in the movie this magic power, and he comes back to life. And then the resurrected lion kills the great white witch, uh, which represents Jesus' defeat of sin and death and Satan at his resurrection. And with the white witch dead, now all things would be transformed uh, back to the way they were before the witch's curse on the land. Now, if all of this sounds familiar, uh, it should. That's what C.S. Lewis had in mind. Uh, that's where we find ourselves this week in God's great narrative, God's great meta-narrative of the Bible. And so uh, today is, like I said, the fourth week of Advent, and today's theme is love. Love that Aslan demonstrated in the movie. The love of Jesus Christ by coming to live a perfect life and dying on a cross for us. It's love that explains everything that God did and that Jesus did. There can be no other explanation for why he would die on a cross for us. He loves us that much. Our sins deserve death, and yet Jesus died to redeem us because of his great love. Well, we've been talking about this grand narrative of God's story now for the past three weeks, and this is our fourth week, and we've seen that God's story can be divided, like any good story, into four main parts. And we saw that the exposition of Genesis chapter 1 is God's introducing the main characters of the story uh, and the setting, which is creation itself. And then part two is the inciting incident where Satan enters into the Garden of Eden and he incites, uh, he tempts Adam and Eve to sin, and they do sin, they eat the apple. Sin and death enter into the world. Uh, and then this rising conflict as over the centuries there is a sin in the world and, and the conflict becomes worse and worse as sin becomes worse and worse. 
And then part three is the climax of the story that we talked about last week. Uh, it begins uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, with Jesus uh, deciding, choosing uh, to go to the cross as uh, in obedience to the Father uh, so that he could redeem us from the penalty for our sin and to endure this excruciating death on the cross, a death that we deserve but that he took in our place for our sin. And so those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have nothing to fear. Uh, the climax of the story has happened. Though there is conflict in the world, the battle has already been won. Jesus Christ is the victor. And now all that's left is for Jesus to return and just tie up the loose ends of the story. And that's called resolution. That's what we'll talk about today, uh, the restoration of the world. So we're going to talk about this restoration in uh, four main parts. Uh, and I'm looking at it like this, the return of the king, the routing of his enemies, the resurrection of the saints, and the restoration of the world. And we're just going to see this theme that runs throughout uh, is that because of God's great love for us, he gave us back way more than was lost in the Garden of Eden, so much more than was lost. So he brings us not only back to what we had, but gives us in addition to uh, so, so much more. So we're going to be looking at this uh, beginning in chapter 19 of Revelation and going all the way into chapter 21. Uh, so uh, we're going to do a flyover, obviously. We can't cover all that in great depth, but I want us to uh, get a little background because we're kind of jumping into the deep end of Revelation here, and I don't want to do that cold. We need a little bit of background. Uh, so the book was written by the Apostle John, uh, who wrote down what God had revealed to him about what was going to happen in the last days. And chapters 6 through 19 take place during the time that we call the tribulation, which is the last seven years before uh, Jesus Christ, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, yes, the last seven years uh, before Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Now, many people think that that seven-year period begins with what is called the rapture of the church, uh, where the saints are taken away and they don't endure the tribulation. Uh, some don't believe in a rapture of the church, and it doesn't really matter for our purposes today. Either way, what we're talking about is that uh, by the time we reach Revelation 19, which is our going to be uh, the beginning of where we look at the uh, Revelation today, the full fury of God's wrath has been poured out uh, on the rebellious people in the form of seven seal judgments and seven trumpet judgments and then seven bowl judgments. Babylon has fallen. The great harlot has been destroyed. The world economic system is in ruins and God's enemies are on the ropes, as we might say. And as chapter 19 begins, a great multitude in heaven is rejoicing because God has finally brought judgment on his enemies. And, and there's this anticipation in the air that Jesus Christ is going to come back now uh, and actually destroy his enemies, deal with his enemies, bring revenge on those who were brutally martyred during uh, their lives for, Jesus, uh, for faith in Jesus. Now, I can't begin to imagine what this might be like, assuming that Jesus doesn't come in our lifetimes. We are going to be among those people who have died, gone to be with him, and it's going to be, we're going to be among those people who are saddling up our horses uh, and getting ready to come back to earth with Jesus to judge his enemies. Won't that be just the most amazing thing uh, if he doesn't come back first, which would be amazing also. Wouldn't that be great if we didn't have to uh, wait that long? But he's going to come back and he's going to finish off Satan and his minions. So let's talk first about the return of the king. 
verses 11 through 16 have already been read. And so what I want us to see here is that uh, this is a vision that John is having uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's standing in his position on earth and he's looking up into heavens and he sees the heavens opened and he sees this rider of a white horse, uh, the one who is called faithful and true, Jesus Christ himself saddled up on this white horse, which is a symbol of uh, a, a symbol of goodness and a symbol of strength and a symbol of power, and he's not coming as a lamb, meek and mild. He's not coming as a baby in a manger. He's not coming humble, riding on a donkey. He's coming on a war horse, and he's coming to bring judgment. The time for repentance is over, and now is the time where he's going to make all things right. And John's description of Jesus is stunning. His eyes are a flaming fire, which of course is a symbol of judgment. And on his uh, head is a crown, many crowns, which indicate his power, his authority, his rule over the land. He's coming with this power. And he's coming on the clouds, just as was predicted in Daniel chapter 7, just as Jesus said uh, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they couldn't convict him of a crime. He said, you will see the Son of Man coming with power on the clouds. And here he comes on, uh, on the clouds with power. And this robe that he wears that is dipped in blood is probably symbolic of his own blood, but could also represent the blood of his enemies, which he is about to unleash. And, on his, and his name, uh, John says, is the Word of God, which, as we know from reading the Gospel of John, he is called the Word throughout that Gospel. And so we see here the return of the king. And he's coming, but he's not coming alone, right? He's bringing his armies with him. Uh, in verses uh, 14 through 16, we'll see that the armies of heaven come with him, and that includes the church and the Old Testament believers and uh, mar those martyred during the tribulation, and perhaps even angels are coming with him. But I want us to notice that none of these are carrying weapons. They are unarmed. Why? because they're not going to need to fight. Jesus will fight this battle alone. They're going to be spectators and cheerleaders as Jesus vanquishes his enemies with the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth, which is a symbolic of the word of God, the word of judgment. And with it, he will strike down the nations. Remember Psalm 2 that we've mentioned a couple times in this series already, which says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. And we see in verse 15, uh, this rod of iron, this iron scepter is mentioned here, and, 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 and Jesus is going to use it to rule over the nations in this millennial kingdom. And he's going to use this fierce, uh, this winepress of the fierce wrath of God to judge his enemies. So the Lord is coming. The Lord will return. And when he does, there is going to be no doubt about the outcome. The Lord is going to rout his enemies. Verses 17 uh, through 21. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. 
And with these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So Jesus' enemies all gather uh, for this battle, uh, which is going to happen here on the plains of Megiddo. Uh, That mound there is the ancient city of Megiddo, and those plains all around it stretch for miles. And this is where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And before it even begins, uh, the birds of the air will announce, get ready, birds of the air. The angel will announce to the birds, get ready to gorge yourselves on the flesh of kings and slaves alike. Uh, And what we see is that the beast and the kings of the earth are going to be there with all their armies and they're going to be in battle gear prepared for this battle. And Jesus will come with his army against the beast of the earth and their armies. I think of uh, the, the scenes in Braveheart, right? It's almost reminiscent of that, where you have these two opposite armies standing on the uh, other si- uh, opposite sides of the field, and there's tension in the air as, as the battle is about to begin. And in a real battle, there would be you know, axe-wielding soldiers uh, charging at each other, swinging axes, and they're covered in blood and guts and all kinds of things that happen in a nasty axe battle. Uh, but here, there is nothing like that. There's no action at all. John simply says the beast was captured and the false prophet with him, and they were both thrown alive into the lake of fire. Uh, Where's the drama? Where's the action? Where's the battle? There is no battle. It is no contest. Jesus comes, he judges, and he casts his enemies alive into the lake of fire. So he deals with those supernatural enemies, the beast and the false prophet, and then he deals with his human enemies. They were killed with the sword that came from Jesus' mouth. No battle, no resistance, just Jesus' judgment and their death. And then the last enemy that Jesus will deal with is the devil himself. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I'm going to try hard not to get too deep in the weeds of eschatology here because uh, we just don't have time for that in one sermon. Uh, But quickly, I want us to see that uh, the seizure, the capture of Satan, marks the end of the tribulation and the beginning of this thousand-year time period known as the Millennial Kingdom. Now, this is the literal 1,000 years that Christ will reign on this earth. Uh, This is one view, of course. Uh, People who hold to that view are what we call premillennial. They believe that that, uh, Christ is going to come before uh, the literal 1,000-year reign, and he's going to reign on this earth for a literal 1,000 years. Now, there are other views about what is going to happen. One is called post-millennialism, and that says that uh, the thousand years is symbolic of a golden age of righteousness of humanity where the gospel is spread and spiritual prosperity will reign and this process will precede Christ's coming. 
Not too many people believe in post-millennialism anymore. That was born in the age of modernism where uh, we were making all these great scientific progress and, and, and people were thinking, well, man is just getting better and better and, and soon it's going to be utopia on Earth. But then World War I, World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam, uh, AIDS, COVID, uh, the 20th century was a wake-up call and the death knell uh, to this age of modernism. So not very many people hold to uh, post-millennialism anymore. And then there's another view called amillennialism that says that the 1,000 years is symbolic of a long period of time, uh, typically characterized by the thought that the Old Testament promises made to Israel are now being fulfilled in the church. Some believe that, others don't. But there are these three different views, and uh, we'll touch on this a little bit more when we reach Romans 11. I just don't have the time today to fully flesh all these views out. But what I want us to see, the main point for today is not the nuances of eschatology. That's not what I wanted to talk about. I just want us to see that the next event uh, after Satan is bound is that the resurrection of the saints happens next. And this is going to be a glorious thing. Revelation chapter 20 verses four through six. I saw on the throne I saw the I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So John references two groups of dead people here uh, in these verses. The first group uh, are those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. And these are usually called tribulation saints, those who uh, believe in Christ during the tribulation and yet are killed, martyred because of their faith. They're going to be raised again, and they're going to enter into this millennial kingdom. Uh, and that's what, that will, that's what will happen to that group. They're going to reign with Jesus for a thousand years uh, with the saints. And so this is called the first resurrection. They're resurrected to life to live in the millennial kingdom. That's what's going to happen to believers. Just as Jesus was resurrected, so the believers will be resurrected and will live and reign with Jesus during this millennial kingdom. Now, uh, John also mentions a second group of uh, risen dead in uh, this parenthetical verse, uh, verse 5, where he mentions these dead that are also going to be raised, these unbelieving dead. They're, these are the unbelieving dead of all the ages. They will not be part of this first resurrection. They are not part of the millennial kingdom. They await a second resurrection, which will happen after the thousand-year period is over, and they will face what is called the Great White Throne Judgment, uh, which is for unbelievers, not a place that you and I want to be and won't be because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are not part of that first resurrection. And so what we need to see is that no unbeliever enters into the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, uh, when it begins, it will be believers because all unbelievers are killed at Christ's return, at his, at his coming. Uh, so for believers, this millennial kingdom is going to be glorious, a thousand years reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. 
And the earth, as you know, if you look around, it's a beautiful place, right? Especially if you get to spend time on the beach or walk around in the mountains or uh, look up at a starry sky at night. It's beautiful, but it's still fallen, right? This world is still under God's curse and it groans under God's curse. Like Narnia uh, was frozen under the curse of the white witch until her evil power was removed, our world is still under a curse. But at the same time, Jesus is going to rule on the millennial kingdom, and God is going to end that curse at that time. But still, the millennial kingdom will not be heaven. Jesus is going to be on earth, and still, that's not heaven, because there's still going to be sin. Believers uh, who, who enter into the millennial kingdom will enter in their human bodies. They'll still be capable of sin. They'll not have glorified bodies like those who return uh, from the dead and come with Jesus Christ. And then these believers are going to have children. And if you have children, you know that you've given birth to young sinners, right? <laughs> and so what we have is human people who, uh, who are sinners. And some of those people who have been born will not believe in Christ, even though he lives and reigns on the earth, which sounds hard to believe. It's hard to wrap our minds around, which is why some people don't believe uh, in this particular view that I'm speaking about the millennial kingdom. Uh, and you don't have to believe this view of the millennial kingdom to be a Christian. Uh, I think it makes the most sense of the biblical data if you interpret it literally, but you don't have to believe this. We can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. These are points of eschatology that we should never divide over. The point is that Jesus has vanquished his enemies and he has raised his saints. Not the order and timing of, of when this happens. That's not the most important thing. The fact that Jesus is victorious and that he raises up his people to life again, that's the important thing. So at some point, after the thousand-year period is over, but before the new heavens and the new earth, you see towards the end of the chart there, Satan gets released again for a short period of time. And we don't know how long that short period of time is. We don't know why God has deemed to do this, but this is part of God's program. Uh, so Satan is going to be raised up. He's going to reign for a short time. And after that short time is over, Satan, along with all the unbelievers of the millennial kingdom, are going to face judgment. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. Unbelievers of all ages will be resurrected to this great white throne judgment where they're going to face God's wrath and also be thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan, death, and Hades. And this is called the second death in Revelation. We have our earthly death and then spiritual ultimate final death here uh, where sin, Satan, and death will finally be defeated. And at this point, only believers remain. Now, that's a lot of eschatology, and I tried to keep it light, but I can't help myself. So in it, we, we, die, we dove a little deeper than I intended to, but uh, uh, what I want us to see is big picture here, not these minute details. I want us to see that, that we have uh, in these, these uh, chapters, these verses, we have the return of the king, and we have the routing of the enemies. We have the resurrection of the saints. God is making all things new. And finally, we have the restoration of the world. God gives back all that was lost in the Garden of Eden because of his great love for us. So let's talk now in the remaining few minutes we have about the restoration of the world. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heavens, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or crying or pain or mourning, for the old order of things has passed away. You know, Peter, uh, in his epistle, predicted that this was going to happen. In his second epistle, he said in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away like a roar, uh, with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And verse 13, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Can you imagine uh, a land, uh, a, a time when righteousness dwells and sin is defeated. The earth as we know it will perish. God will judge all unredeemed sinners and cast them into the lake of fire with death, with Hades, with Satan. There will no longer be any tears, pain, or death, and God will dwell with his people in this new heaven and new earth. And at this point, all of us will have resurrection bodies uh, will not sin. And this is what it means when John said that the old order of things has passed away. In verse 4, there will be a new order of things where all the saints in their glorified bodies worship the Lord night and day. We're going to live in this new heaven and new earth. John described the city as pure gold. Uh, the foundation is made of every precious stone imaginable, jasper, sapphire, emeralds, amethyst, pearls, and more. There will be no temple because God and Jesus are its temple. There will be no sun because God himself is the light. The nations will walk by light because there is no darkness there. And nothing unclean will ever come into this city. No cheating, stealing, lying, rape, murder, abuse, cancer, COVID. It will all be gone in this new heaven and new earth. The river of life will run right through the city from the throne of God. And on either side will be the tree of life that bears fruit every single month. There will no longer be any curse. And the servants of God, you and me, will be there worshiping God day and night, serving him, seeing his face, and reigning with him forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Amen. Now, I like Texas as much as the next guy, right? Texas is a fine place, but I want to see the new heavens and the new earth. I can't wait to see what that is going to look like when God restores and replenishes all that was lost in the fall. So let's just think for a few minutes about all that God will give us back, everything that we lost and more when he makes all things new. Now, uh, in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, Bill had this great chart that he handed out, and uh, I'm borrowing from it this week so we can compare what was lost in the Garden of Eden to what we get back uh, in this new heavens and, and this new earth. I don't know if you can even read that. I'll read it to you. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, a death entered into the world, but in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more death, no more pain, no more tears. In the Garden of Eden, Satan appeared as a deceiver, but in Revelation, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. The Garden of Eden was defiled by sin, but nothing will ever defile the new Jerusalem. 
In the Garden of Eden, Adam's walk with God was interrupted because of sin, but now the walk is resumed and will never be interrupted again. In the Garden of Eden, Satan triumphs, but in Revelation, in the New Jerusalem, Jesus triumphs. Jesus is king. In the Garden of Eden, God multiplied Eden, uh, Eve's pain, but in Revelation, there is no more pain, no more tears, no more crying. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, God cursed the ground, but in Revelation, there is no more curse. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but now a new paradise is opened. Adam lost access to the tree of life in the garden, but in Revelation, we have free access to it. So God restores all that was lost in the Garden of Eden and gives us so much more on top of it. Now, how can God do this considering our sin, considering us sinful creatures? Well, he can only do it through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what we celebrate now. At Christmas, the eternal Son of God became a man, lived a perfect sinless life, and died on a cross for our sin. Now, how is it possible for a man to live a sinless life? Well, it's only possible because Jesus Christ, though fully man, was also fully God. And he was able to be the sacrifice that we need. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system, you couldn't bring a, a deformed lamb. You couldn't bring a, a, a maimed lamb to be your sacrifice. You had to bring a perfect lamb. Only that lamb could atone for your sins. And that's why Jesus had to be perfect, why he had to be sinless, a lamb without spot or blemish. You know, I can't die for your sins. I'm not perfect. You can't die for my sins. You're not perfect. Only Jesus is qualified to be our sacrifice and our Savior. And God planned this before time began. And Jesus carried out the plan perfectly. He died this horrific death on a cross in our place as our substitute, taking the penalty for sin that we deserve. And then God the Father raised him up from the dead to show that he was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice, that the, the, the debt was paid in full. And then Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father to show that the work was done, it was complete, and nothing else had to be done, all because of the love of God. He entered into time and space and a human body at a moment in history 2,000 years ago to do the will of his Father, which includes this difficult life and this death on a cross. He laid down his life for us. Well, we're just a few days away from Christmas now, and we're concluding this Advent series. So let's just uh, talk for a couple of minutes here about what Christmas means. And the first thing it means is that the Lord Jesus Christ loves us more than we can ever imagine. We have all been rebellious against God, and the Bible calls that rebellion sin. God is holy, and he must, must punish sin. If he allowed sinful people into heaven, it would no longer be a holy place, and it would be tainted. But because he loves us so much, Jesus took that punishment that we deserve in our place, and he applied Jesus' blood to our account so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus holy, perfect, uh, sinless, and he allows us into heaven because we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We are holy in God's eyes. So for that to happen, Jesus Christ has to love us more than we could understand. And it also means that we have hope for the future. The world is full of sin now, and it's under God's curse, and it's destined for destruction. 
But as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, those of us who have trusted in him have this blessed assurance that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us up as well from the dead to have eternal life with him. And that should give us peace and that should give us joy in this chaotic world. And it also means one more thing, that we should show the same love that Jesus showed us to each other. Jesus' life was 100% sacrificial. He was born to die. It was the whole reason that he came. And so we should live our lives sacrificially too. In the lie and the witch in the wardrobe, Aslan allowed himself to be killed uh, to, to atone for sin, but then he rose victorious over death and the white witch. And then Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy were made a kings over Narnia to, to govern it wisely and kindly following Aslan's model. And that's how Jesus rules, that we are called to do the same, to follow Jesus' model. We're called to love each other as he loved us. And we can do it because he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we give gifts to each other this Christmas, on Christmas morning, on Christmas Eve, whatever your tradition is, let's just remember the greatest gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, all believers are saved. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord God, what an incredible story. We think about this story in four parts, Lord, uh, created from before the foundation of the world, uh, that you made the world, uh, sin entered the world, your son died for this, our sin, and you will make all things new. Lord, we just thank you for your amazing plan. We thank you for Jesus who uh, willingly executed the plan, Lord. He had to come as a helpless babe. He had to live a perfect life. He had to die on a cross, all because he loved us so much. Lord, we just thank you for this. And Lord, as we think about all these things this Christmas season, may our hearts be filled with joy and hope and peace and love as we uh, just think about what it means that Jesus became a man. Lord, we thank you for these things in his precious name. Amen.